0: Hey and welcome back to the history of China. Finals are over and we are back in business. Remember to check out the website though, dormroomhistory.com or if you want to skip ahead, dormroomhistory.com/the history of China. The website, as you know by now, has posts for each episode that include comment forums, maps, depictions, And tons of other really cool stuff. And if you haven't already, be sure to rate the show and give it a follow. It may not seem like a lot to you, but it really does make a big difference. And of course, thank you to those who have donated and sent me questions. I love answering them, and you guys are the best. Last time, though, we covered the back half of Qin Shi Huangdi's life. Conquest, policy, and yes... A strong fear of death. And yeah, we ended up diving really deep into the terracotta army. But while Qin Shi Huangdi may have been buried with a clay army, other states and other actors were very much still alive. And had real armies. The intense draconian measures of the Qin Dynasty worked great to unify all of the warring states. But now that they were all under one umbrella that brutality would prove to be too much. Look, immense heat is needed for a kiln to form a fragile piece of pottery. But after it's been made into one solid piece, too much pressure or heat will actually eventually break that piece of pottery. And that's what's gonna happen to the Qin Dynasty. And the story we are about to dive into is very near and dear to my heart as the next dynasty the han well that's what got me into podcasting in the first place so well no excuses now let's see if i've improved in the slightest so without further ado the history of china episode 24 and just like that the han Qin Shi Huangdi, with retrospect, was the Qin dynasty. And not even 15 seconds after his death, the perpetual issue of succession became a big issue for the Qin. Because, well, not more than 15 seconds after he died, his own imperial court began to get ideas in their head. Did they think they would attain the throne themselves somehow? Actually, no. No. The heretical nature of the emperor position was very clear to everyone, and Qin Shi Huangdi, well, he had a lot of concubines and wives, well, he did indeed have many sons. But that didn't mean that those in his imperial court didn't see this as a chance to boost their own power. Qin Shi Huangdi's right-hand man, someone we've mentioned already, Li Su, as well as a eunuch named Zhao Gao, decided to not actually tell anyone the Emperor was actually dead. Instead, they used this delay in the announcement to alter Qin Shi Huangdi's will, and they altered it to state that the actual heir was really his most pliable and weak son. Why would they do this? Well, it's pretty straightforward a weak and pliable emperor would be really easy to manipulate. Thus, Li Su and the eunuch Zhao Gao would essentially be the puppet masters of the emperor, and thus, by extension, the entire dynasty. With the will properly rewritten, Qin ar was proclaimed emperor of the Qin dynasty. And right from the get-go... He was as pliable and weak as the two power-hungry court officials could have hoped for. If not even more so. The weak-willed Chin Archer had anyone and everyone the two officials wanted gone, executed. He would then spend enormous sums of money on pretty pointless projects, and yeah, he increased taxes. Oh, and he had any messengers that brought him bad news, arrested, and sometimes killed. Not messengers that brought him bad press, or any bad feelings about him. That's normal. Emperors tend to do that. No, any messenger that just brought him bad news in general was arrested and sometimes killed. And as you can probably imagine, it didn't take much time for people to start to get a little pissed off. A duke here who needs help that was ignored, or another whose taxes got raised. Pick your poison. There was a lot to be upset about. Now, what really sent this situation into a true death spiral is that, well, Qin Arsher was simply not his father. Where Qin Shi Huang Di was cruel and strict, but iron-fisted, Qin Arsher was just cruel, well, and inept. When I say it didn't take much time for people to get pissed off, I didn't mean a few years into his reign. I meant like weeks and months into it. And all of these new issues with Qin Arshur were just piled on top of a laundry list of grievances against the now-dead Qin Shi Huang Di. Because yeah, Qin Shi Huang Di was a tough guy to live under. And so angry citizens all around the dynasty began to revolt little by little. Royal officials began to be killed with increasing frequency, and some in the dynasty were flirting with redeclaring themselves as kings, and others were even appearing to be in the early stages of raising armies. This quickly deteriorating situation began to put a lot of pressure on the new emperor's puppet masters, and Li Su and the eunuch Zhao Gao, under this pressure, had a fast falling out. And I mean fast, because within months of his ascension, Zhao Gao the eunuch had gotten Qin Arsher to execute the eminently capable, but yeah power-hungry, Li Su. This house of cards is falling fast. And now this, though, is where things begin to get a little bit crazy if they were not already. Zhao Gao the eunuch had put Qin Arshur on the throne because he was weak and pliable, yes. But Zhao Gao the eunuch had not expected the new emperor to be as incompetent as he was now showing himself to be. Weak and manipulatable is one thing, but Qin Arshur was another thing altogether. He was just dangerously incompetent. So much so that he couldn't even be manipulated to do the right thing. So, probably panicked and extremely frustrated realizing that Chin Arsher's general incompetence was going to burn the whole thing down, Zhao Gao the eunuch convinced the new emperor to kill himself. Which the emperor ended up doing. Yes. He was convinced to kill himself, because he was just that incompetent. Now look, forceful abdication can help keep a dynasty going. It clears the cancer out. But unfortunately for the Qin Dynasty, Qin Arsher was not their only problem. Was there a proper replacement? No. Were all of the Qin Dynasty's harsh policies beginning to backfire? Yes. Was Qin Arshur incompetent? Yes. The damage, for all intents and purposes, was already done. And the Qin Dynasty's issues went from quiet to terminal in the span of just a few months. Now, Qin Arshur's nephew would be the one to take the reins in 209 BC, just the next year after Qin Shi Huangdi died. Now, the nephew's name... Was Zi Ying. Zi And besides having Zhao Gao quickly executed for, well, forcing his uncle to kill himself, Zi Ying himself was stated to have also been wait, can you guess it? You probably did. Yeah, incompetent. Incompetent or not, the dynasty was crashing as quickly as it had risen. And nothing could seemingly stop this tailspin, because in 209 BC, yeah, about a year after Qin Shi Huangdi died, a full-fledged popular revolt broke out. Now, the revolt itself is confusing, with sometimes clearly mythological events occurring, like a giant snake killing people with its breath, or just generally contradictory facts, I mean, it's like a George Washington and the cherry tree story, but on steroids at points. What we will focus on here, though, are two rebel leaders, Xiang Yu of the Chu State and Liu Bang of the Chu State as well, but later of the Han, as these two vied for control of the collapsed Qin dynasty. Now, Liu Bang the most important character in this story, had been born a peasant, and had actually worked as a small-time government official for the Qin before the revolt had broken out. Now again, his origin story does contain that mythological story of the snake and the breath, but the fact of him being born of relatively low birth and working for the Qin is believable, and modern historians do agree that was probably the case. But the revolt itself was started by the royal members of the varying warring states in order to essentially turn back the clock and regain their individual crowns. Though, while it was started by many of the old houses of the old warring states, the revolt was actually more grassroots than one would think. And the Chu leadership in particular, yes, remember the Chu state? well, their leadership was arguably the most prolific. And it's under them that Liu Bang ended up joining and taking orders from. But that true leadership was started by a commoner who himself installed a man named King Hui the latter, as their own king. And yeah, I know it's going to get a little confusing here because everybody's going to start declaring themselves king of this or king of that. But all you need to know right now is that a commoner in the Chu State just installed a man named King Huai, who is the leader of Liu Bang and Xiang Yu. The two figures were most important in this story. Now, as you could probably ascertain, this revolt had no clear center or singular force. It was, after all, more of an anti-Qin revolt than a pro-something-else revolt. There was, yeah, the goal to turn back the clock. But that older time was never stable, as we know. So what were you going to turn it back to? We've seen states come, states go, the three jinns, the way, the Zhao. What are you going to turn it back to? But most importantly, though, a lot had changed during the short Qin Dynasty. A lot of things that weren't going to go back. As mentioned, though, this King Huai, the latter character, would be the leader of both our key rebel characters here in Liu Bang and Xiang Yu. King Huai, this rebel king, essentially decided to make the revolt, well, a competition, because it is stated in the Chronicles that he promised that whoever entered the Qin capital province of Guangzhong first would receive the title king of Guanzhong, and would become its rightful ruler. He's essentially saying anyone who can take it is going to be able to have it. So with the stakes clearly laid out, Liu Bang got his troops together and in 206 BC won that competition and got there first. And upon arrival to the actual capital city of Xianyang, he met no resistance. He was allowed to simply just walk in. And just like that, without much of a bang, but instead a whimper, Ying was deposed, and the Qin dynasty was effectively over. Underwhelming, right? Hours and hours of content led to this dynasty, and just like that, it was over. As fast as they had showed up and established the dynasty, it all fell apart. Now though, once inside the capital, Liu Bang forbade his troops from pillaging and immediately did what everyone wanted to do probably since the dynasty started. Can you guess it? Yeah, Liu Bang immediately got rid of all of the draconian laws that almost always had a punishment of death attached to them. He had peacefully secured the city and had peacefully restored order. So, that's that? Well, no, of course not. Because generals tend to be egomaniacs to some degree or another. And Xiang Yu, the other rebel leader, was not a gracious loser. Being a worse sore loser than Tom Brady, Xiang Yu immediately tried to have Liu Bang killed. Yep, he beat me to the city, I'm a sore loser, he's gotta go. But his method? Well, from the advice or maybe an order of one of his advisors, it was to have a performer do a sword dance. And yeah, while doing this dance, carry, well, a real sword. Now, you can probably figure out what they were going to do. Though, I say try, because the plot fell apart, and Liu Bang was alerted to the threat, and, well, literally pulled the old I-have-to-go-to-the-bathroom trick and got out of Dodge. And I mean literally, because the Chronicles state that after being alerted to the threat, Liu Bang excused himself to go to the restroom, and instead of going to the restroom well, escaped. Nothing substantial happened from that assassination attempt, but the sore loser was still sore. And instead of giving Liu Bang the whole territory he was promised as part of that competition, he saw to it that Liu Bang was given control over Ba Shu in the Han River Basin. What? How did he do that? The competition rules were pretty clear. And yeah, this area was literally a place for exiling prisoners. But Yu looked Liu Bang in the eyes and said, Well, I'm saying it's part of the Guangzhong region you were promised. So, well, no hard feelings. You got what you won. So Liu Bang, now the recognized King of Han, then took his army, went to the Han, and burned the path behind him as to prevent a potential ambush from the clearly already hostile Xiang Yu. Xiang Yu, in the meantime, had himself declared the hegemon king of the Chu. Now, I may have spoiled it there indirectly, but the next dynasty is indeed the Han dynasty, not the Chu dynasty. With that knowledge, we can also see that Xiang Yu is portrayed horribly, almost as just a plain and simple villain. sore loser, giving him the bad territories, lying to him, and yeah, trying to have him killed. But this is all probably because the historians that wrote all of this were under the Han Dynasty's gun. I'm not saying it's all made up, but he probably wasn't this archetypal villain that he's portrayed to be. Regardless, though, the revolt had been to go back to the old ways. And now with the king of the Han and a hegemon king of the Chu already on the board and other kings here and there, you would feel that there, it's over. Back to the warring states. Things were different now, though. And Xiang Yu and Liu Bang would, like Mark Antony and Octavian, not coexist for long. These two kings, as I sort of alluded to, were not the only kings, but like the Qin state and the Qi state back in the good old days of the Warring States, well, they were the two big kids on the block, and everybody else was sort of just existing. The two's ensuing power struggle that kicked off in that same year in 206 BC would be known as the Han Chu Contention. Though, yeah, it wasn't just Han versus Chu, as each of them, while contending with each other, were picking off the smaller areas just so recently made independent. The Han under Liu Bang and the Chu under Xiang Yu would have many back-and-forth battles from 206 BC to 202 BC, and their armies were slated at times well, they peak at almost 600,000 men aside. It's truly incredible stuff. I mean, I've mentioned it a million times already, but the numbers the Chinese militaries were able to field is something to be in awe of. Not just because it's a lot of people, but imagine having, again, to supply those people, arm them, clothe them, feed them, transport them. It's just an incredible feat of society. But now, battles like Pengcheng, Jingsuo, and Cheng Gao saw one side win and then the other side win, and it just went back and forth. But in 202 BC, the deadlock would finally break. And they would break at the Chinese version of the Greek hot gates. Something we've already talked about, the Hanku Pass. Now, the Lord of Pei's magistrate, gave the following advice to Liu Bang about handling the now aggressively advancing Chu army. The magistrate remarked that, quote, you must hasten to send troops to guard the Ku Pass. Do not admit the army of the nobles and levy some soldiers from Kwantung in order to add to your own army and resist the Chu, end quote. Liu Bang assented to this plan and followed it to a T. The Han army went out and blocked the pass, and this did cause a short stalemate. But in 202 BC, the decisive battle occurred. According to the annals of Emperor Cao the battle went as such. Quote, in the twelfth month, they surrounded Xiang Yu's camp at Gaixia. In the night, Xiang Yu heard the army of the Han on all sides, singing the songs of Chu, and thought that the King of the Han had gained the victory and all the territory of the Chu. So Xiang Yu fled with several hundred horsemen. But because of this fact, his army was severely defeated. Quan Ying pursued and beheaded Xiang Yu at Tongcheng." Now, what essentially happened in that story, and I wanted to give a little more of the ancient chronicler's words in this show because I've been asked by a few to do so. What essentially happened is that the Han army began singing songs of the Chu, and it made it feel as if they'd already won. And it was nighttime, there's confusion, there's no lights. So Xiang Yu, upon hearing the Han army singing all these songs, assumed that a battle had already happened, or the Han had ambushed them and it was over. And he fled. But the reality was, the Han hadn't even attacked yet. And Xiang Yu's retreat and fleeing caused chaos. And then the Han were able to secure, well, a pretty easy victory and kill Xiang Yu in the process. And after Liu Bang of Han won the decisive battle at Gai Xia against Xiang Yu, he was now not just a king or even a hegemon king. No. Instead, with the never-before-felt unity the Qin dynasty brought to the once perpetually fractured China, Liu Bang declared himself as emperor of China, thus beginning the Han dynasty. And like Octavian into Augustus, Liu Bang the ex-low-level Qin government employee, was now Emperor Gao of the Han Dynasty. In just seven or so years after Qin Shi Huangdi died, China was under a new dynasty. The Han, though, for their part, were here to stay. The Han Dynasty would end up being the first Chinese dynasty to reach Rome by proxy. And if you believe some theories, inadvertently set events in motion that would lead to Rome's fall. That all, however, and all that cool stuff is far away for the Han right now. Because their first emperor literally just took the reins. And the Han immediately had problems on their hands. First, they had to roll back legalism. Though what would replace it no one knew. Because at the time of his ascension, Emperor Gao, and we're going to call him that now, the is now Emperor Gao, well, Emperor Gao, nonetheless, despised Confucianism. So what were they going to replace it with? Well, the jury was still out. And second, there were enemies of the Han outside of China. Maybe some of you were wondering, hey, wait, Eric, You said the Xiongnu were really pissed off at Imperial China for booting them out of the Ortis Loop. And didn't you also say they were consolidating their power and growing to get some sort of payback? Well, yes. Yes, I did. And the Xiongnu didn't really care if the Qin fell or not. Their land was in the hands of the Han now, and the problem the Qin had was now the Han's problem. And the Xiongnu are going to be a very big problem. But all of these issues facing the Han, however, are for the next episode, as there is just too much to dive into with all of these different questions, and squeezing them in right now would just not do them justice. So, next episode. The Han Dynasty is here, and they will immediately start confronting all of those aforementioned issues and some more issues piled on top of them. But remember, as usual, to check out the website to see all of the maps and comment threads and more for this episode and past ones, and follow us on Twitter. Link to that is also on the website. Thank you so much, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China.